Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Every day, our world gets a little more connected. But a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, April 3rd, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds and at inquiringshow.tumblr.com or on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Ex Machina. A24 presents this sci-fi thriller directed by the writer of Sunshine and 28 Days Later. The Telegraph calls it bewitchingly smart science fiction, and the Daily Mirror declares it's an instant classic. Starring Oscar Isaac, Domhnall Gleeson, and Alicia Vikander, Ex Machina opens in select theaters in New York and L.A. on April 10th. More cities and theaters every week after that. So as you know, neuroscience is my wheelhouse, and so I'm particularly sensitive to media stories about the brain, especially when journalists or others get the science spectacularly wrong. So one of my pet peeves is when you read a headline and it claims that X treatment or behavior or thing changes your brain. Because, of course, the statement is kind of meaningless because, you know, eating a donut changes your brain Time passing changes your brain, just like it changes your skin and other parts of your body. But the reason why people are so enthralled by statements like this lies in part in a misconception that at one point was actually dogma in neurology for a long time. So this is the idea that the brain, once fully developed in adulthood, doesn't really change very much. So by that token, it should be surprising that, you know, something can change your brain. Unlike skin cells that do actually divide and multiply and regenerate all the time, neurons for the most part don't. They might make some new connections or change their firing patterns or grow new bits and bobs, but they don't divide, uh, except in two regions of the brain. So your olfactory cortex, where chemicals bind to cells that then translate them into the experience of smelling something, and the dentate gyres of the hippocampus, where new long-term memories are formed. But besides these two areas, there really aren't uh, parts of the brain that grow new neurons. And for a long time, neurologists who had people who came into their office with brain damage or some kind of a disorder didn't really have much to do to help people. So they focused on diagnosing problems instead of treating them. And so the dogma continued that once fully developed, our brains were pretty much like machines with many parts that don't change by themselves, but, you know, they can break down. And that idea permeated neuroscience. 
But at the same time, people who studied memory, like Nobel Prize winning Eric Kandel, realized that our experiences do shape the very anatomy of our brains, something called neuroplasticity, and it's responsible for our ability to learn. Many of these ideas, though, stayed within the realm of cellular neuroscience, and how our brains change with time, experience, or other variables was was poorly understood at the systems level, that is, by neurologists who work with people and not sea slugs. Then came along Norman Deutsch, and he's a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst, and about 10 years ago, he wrote a book that pulled the concepts of neuroplasticity into the field of psychiatry and helped laypeople understand that our brains are, in fact, malleable and changeable and not static, as neurology sometimes makes us believe they are. So his book, uh, called The Brain That Changes Itself, was a New York Times bestseller. And now he's just published a kind of sequel, and this time not just documenting how the brain is plastic, but also how we might begin to think about using this property of the brain to heal people with brain disorders and even enhance cognition in people who are otherwise healthy. <laughs> so I was curious to hear about this aspect of his work, so I invited him onto our show. One thing that always concerns me, though, when we hear about work that's somewhat at the fringes of neuroscience, that is, you know, it hasn't been entirely evaluated with all the right controls yet, but it shows some promising results. Sometimes this kind of work gets overinterpreted, and it can give patients with certain disorders, particularly autism or ADHD, a false sense of hope. So when I asked Norman whether he worries about people misusing the techniques that he describes in his book to, quote unquote, change the brain and give people false hope, here's what he had to say. I'm very, very clear at the beginning of my book that replacing the neurological nihilism, which I deal with every day of people who have been told that they couldn't get better, and yet I see these patients get better, you don't solve the problem of neurological nihilism by going to some kind of equally extreme neurological utopianism. And I never say to anybody, this will work, ever. I say things like, the statement made to you that nothing could help wasn't based on an exhaustive look at everything. And it was based on a doctrine of the unchanging brain. So what do you think? Neurological nihilism, that's a new term for me. Uh, I have to say neuroplasticity has been one of those marketing buzzwords that has moved away from science. And as soon as I hear that word, I think of those brain training apps and all of those games and, you know, PBS at television that has all of these uh, different uh, scientists and doctors talking about how you can rewire and my skeptical brain come emerges saying, uh, wondering if we're really way far ahead of where the science is because we're talking about healthy brains uh, improving our memory and attention in significant ways that will help us in an everyday life. And really what I, I, I sort of surmise from you from the conversation is, is are there more extreme cases that are actually the ones that are in the literature? Yeah, so I, I think you're exactly right. And I actually think Norman Doidge is one of the writers that sort of launched this revolution of neuroplasticity in the media and so forth. And, you know, you're exactly right that it the term gets misused. And I do think people overestimate just how plastic their brains are. I mean, look, I teach a course at the Conservatory of Music called Training the Musical Brain, and it's all about understanding how, you know, practice and training essentially changes the way your brain responds to certain stimuli. And that's, you know, how we learn. And there's lots of evidence that, you know, in fact, there are neuroanatomical changes. 
But the one thing that doesn't change is the fact that, you know, these experiences happen over a long period of time. We're talking about, you know, major, major changes that happen only after major, major events and experiences. Um, so playing a couple of video games for a few hours is not going to have a long lasting change in your brain unless it's like, you know, particularly traumatic or in some other ways, you know, really memorable. This is directly to the analog that Jonathan Eisen had with you know, eating the probiotic bacteria from our microbiome episode a couple of weeks ago, dropping some like a really curated set of bacteria into this ocean of bacteria that live in your system, probably not going to make the biggest difference. It's Is like, that- that's a great analogy. And, you know, I, I think that's exactly right, right? So, you know, what you do for a couple of minutes in a day is not necessarily going to have long-term, long-lasting effects on your brain, unless it's something, you know, kind of specific. Like, if, for example, if you snorted cocaine, or you did something that really did fundamentally change some components of your neuroanatomy, then I could see how just a few minutes would, would have lasting changes. Um, and, you know, there are some, there's actually some evidence, though, that certain even short applications of things like meditation, um, if you do it on a daily basis, can have long-lasting psychological effects, which, of course, translate into changes in the brain. I mean, your, your mind and brain are one and the same thing. So before we get to the bulk of that particular interview, I wanted to talk about a couple things uh, in the news this week. And one of them is something that is really kind of fun for me to contemplate. And so I wanted to ask you, uh, how you feel about this particular scenario and what you would do in this situation. Okay, so imagine this. You're in San Francisco. There's a cable car carrying five school children, and it's hurtling down one of the steepest streets in the city, and it's going straight towards a muni bus that's stalled on the tracks, okay? Oh, no. So if you're standing next to a switch that would divert the cable car down another street where eventually it would come to a stop safely because the street flattens out, would you do that? Yeah, sure, of course. Okay. Now there's a catch. On that other street, there's an innocent tech dude who's uh, enjoying some hipster coffee, sipping it, and if you divert the cable car, you're going to kill the hipster. Now what would you do? Well, I have a clarifying question. Is he on his phone? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, then definitely diverting the... This is such a Sophie's Choice question. Do I save the five kids or the one? Uh, if I was to actually answer honestly, I think my gut would be to save the, the children. Save the children. Okay. What if there's only one child and there were two hipsters? Oh, it's still save the children. It's not a numbers game. <laughs> so here we are with a moral dilemma, right? So, and um, traditionally, this was a philosophical sort of sacrificial dilemma. And the philosophers came up with this idea that if you did choose to kill the hipster for the children, um, you're really acting in what they call a utilitarianism fashion. So, you know, you are looking for the greater good in the situation rather than simply following some kind of rule-based moral reasoning. So psychologists love this, you know, problem and they took it as a kind of, you know, gold standard moral reasoning indicator. And so what they would do is they would say if you do choose to kill the hipster or you know in some cases it's like an innocent, you know, some other person, um 
then you are utilitarian in terms of how you have your moral reasoning. And if you don't, then you're kind of a moral absolutist. Um, and so, which means that, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of not very evolved when it comes to moral reasoning. You're sort of lower on the totem pole in terms of that evolution. Oh, poor tech worker. He's really getting it. <laughs> so, right. So the problem, though, uh, is that when neuroscientists then who study moral reasoning put people in the fMRI scanner and make grand conclusions about how the brain's moral centers uh, are activated based on this interpretation of the trolley problem – we come up with a bit of an issue. And it turns out that a few Oxford philosophers who, I guess, were annoyed by the psychologists who were doing this work, tested the moral reasoning of people who do, in fact, choose to kill the hipster, right? And they wondered whether these people were really morally superior than the people who chose to just not do anything. The answer was, of course, yes. Uh, it turns out it didn't work out so well oh, no. <laughs> for them. Um, so some people who chose this route also tended to show antisocial tendencies. That is, they had less empathy, less aversion to cause harm. So they scored high on questions in which they were asked if they would actually, in real life, kill the hips kill the hipster you know they said actually yes i would <laughs> so they aced uh the psychopath test and they flunked the empathy test so apparently these oxford philosophers are saying that this trolley problem is better suited for discovering psychopaths than for identifying brain regions that are involved in moral reasoning oh the next time i see a muni bus stalled in the middle of the street i think i'll think differently about it <laughs> yeah so interesting um interpretation i think now that we know what other correlates have on this behavior we kind of need to go back to a lot of those neuroimaging studies and really ask ourselves, you know, what can we conclude from the brain regions that are active in people that choose the, the kill the hipster solution rather than the don't do anything? That's just bizarre. Yeah. So now that we have to sort of go back and reinterpret all these fMRI studies, um, you know, what's been on your desk? The most interesting news story that I came across this week was... Uh, about sniff and smell detection. Uh-huh. You're familiar with the notion of dogs can have a much more uh, developed sense of smell than humans. Of course. And it's up to 10,000 times, if not more than that. Scientists are having actually a hard time determining what the sensitivity is. But, you know, we use dogs to sniff out drugs at airports and, and for uh, bomb detection. And what researchers in South Africa have found out is that elephants actually have a finer developed sense of smell than dogs. Wait, so this is surprising? I mean, an elephant's nose is its most, you know, dominant feature, right? So I know we've talked about sense? this in the past, but it's not the size of the nose. <laughs> they actually evaluated it across a lot of conditions. So they found that an elephant actually has 2,000 genes all coded for smelling, which wow. is... Uh, twice that of dogs and five times of that uh, to humans. And uh, they found that the elephants uh, in these tests were actually very good at detecting TNT and trace amounts of TNT. And they conducted a two-year study, and the elephants did not miss the TNT once over a two-year period in that entire test. Uh, and before you think, oh, no... Airports are crowded enough. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have bring to, an elephant into the airport? To, yeah. Really what the, the goal is, is to develop a better uh, biodetector uh, for agents. Because right now, the way they have to use a automated detector around TNT is they have to put it right up against the potential object that contains it. 
which is very dangerous. So they're looking at ways to actually extend the distance between the object they're testing and the actual detection device. And the notion is that they could potentially learn from what is happening with, with these ele uh, elephants to actually create something that lets you be about 10 feet away from the actual device to detect it, which would be amazing uh, and much safer than having elephants roaming the airport. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would imagine so. And elephants' uh, smell has been studied for a long period of time. And I think one of the more interesting studies that uh, I, I heard about around this issue is that there's elephants that have a relationship with a, a certain tribes in Kenya, and they're able to actually tell the difference between two sets of tribes just based off of their smell. Wow. You know, it makes me wonder whether there is an association between the elephant sort of, um, I guess, highly evolved sense of smell and the fact that they seem to be relatively social creatures. So they're one of the few species that do things like have ceremonies and rituals to bury their dead, for example, and they seem to have, you know, emotions around this and so forth. And you know, I wonder if there's a connection between um, there's this heightened sense of smell. I mean, do they have sort of hormonal ways of or pheromone based communication between each other? Do we know? I don't I don't know the answer to that. But before our listeners go run out and hug an elephant, I will remind them that over 200 people a year get are killed by elephants. 200 humans a year are killed by elephants wow. in those in run ins in the wild. So don't go hug an elephant. But be impressed at their sense of smell. Wow, that's as many people as die from food allergies every year in the U.S. Did you know that? No, I did not. A little mini factoid for you. Things you learn when you have a baby. Okay, with that, let's take a short break. And we'll be back with my interview with Norman Deutsch. This episode is sponsored by Ex Machina. A24 presents the sci-fi thriller directed by the writer of Sunshine and 28 Days Later. The Telegraph calls it bewitchingly smart science fiction and the Daily Mirror declares it's an instant classic. Our producer had a chance to watch an early screening of this movie, and he loved it. They crammed in a ton of interesting science, and if you're at all interested in artificial intelligence, you'll probably really like this movie. It stars Oscar Isaac, Domhnall Gleeson, and Alicia Vikander. Ex Machina opens in select theaters in New York and L.A. on April 10th. More cities and theaters every week after that. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Norman Deutsch. Thanks very much for having me. I have really enjoyed both of your books. And in your first book, you introduced lay people to a concept that's been percolating in neuroscience for a while, but hadn't really been brought into mainstream thinking. And this is the notion that the brain is not static in adulthood, that in fact, it's plastic or malleable. So let's start there. What is it that allowed us to understand that the brain is actually plastic? And what do we mean by neuroplasticity? Sure. Neuro is for neuron, the nerve cells in the brain and nervous system uh, that do a number of things, but particularly fire electrical signals. And plastic means changeable, adaptable, and modifiable. And neuroplasticity, as I define it, is that property of the brain that allows it to change its structure and function in response to activity and mental experience. So it's something the brain evolved to do, and it's a property of the brain, and its discovery is revolutionary. Um, it has revolutionary implications because the mainstream model of the brain for at least 100 years was that its circuits, it was seen as a kind of a machine with parts, an electrical machine, 
and the circuitry of the brain was seen to be hardwired, certainly after early childhood. And that metaphor of hardwiring has influenced how we understood what the brain was capable of clinically and even in our own lives and culturally, because the implications were that if you were born with a hardwired brain and it was in some ways damaged, there was nothing you could do. If you had cerebral palsy or was, were born with a learning disorder or a stroke or some kind of traumatic brain injury later in life, you had to learn to work around it if you could. And the only change that the brain was seen to undergo was degenerative change with age. Um, your brain, we now discover, actually requires activity to maintain itself. And it's far more likely to waste away from underuse than it is to wear out from overuse. So it's the machine metaphor. Uh, it's not that there's nothing to it, but overall, it's gotten to the point where it is concealing more than it's revealing about our brains. And the reason we've been able to discover this in recent times is we've developed the ability to make microscopic movies, if you will, of the brain uh, while it's active, while it's alive, and we can see these changes occurring. And so one of the things, though, that we should note, too, is that brain cells are not like skin cells that regenerate all the time and, you know, continue to divide. There, there is some truth in the, in the idea that, you know, after maybe even the first year of life, the vast majority of the brain cells that are going to be in your brain are now alive and there. And the things that change are the connections between them, not the cells themselves. Because otherwise, how would experience sort of be able to influence our life for years and decades and so forth? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it, it is true that, you know, the brain is different than other, other organs in the body. A hundred years were spent looking for stem cells or baby kinds of neurons in the brain and by some of the finest neuroanatomists around. And we failed, or they failed, uh, the Royal We of Science failed. But in 1998, we did discover that there are some areas of the brain, and including the very important area of the hippocampus, which turns short-term memories into long-term memories, that does have uh, stem cells and does produce new cells. But the overwhelming majority of these changes are, as you correctly say, going on in the networks that form, unform, and reform in the brain by changing the strengths of the connections between individual brain cells. There may be other areas where plasticity applies. I, I do want to say that. It's very, very important for people to know that it's not as though we've cracked the neural code and know exactly how it works and know exactly how thought uh, is produced by the brain or changes. There's a lot of things we still don't know about the brain. And some would argue that plasticity exists at multiple levels in the brain. Um, you know, when you think or when you learn a new skill, it changes the connections in the brain. So we can see those changes there. We can also see changes in the supply to the neurons in terms of blood. The glial cells, which support the brain and are also involved in some way in communication, seem to have neuroplastic change. The genes that are turned on to make the proteins um, are, are changing in their own ways. And then at the highest, most remote level, huge compartments of the brain seem to be able to change their structure and function. Uh, so we've paid most attention most recently to the, the levels of changes between brain cells, uh, between the neurons. But there also may be other areas that are neuroplastic as well. And in some ways, the findings that we're having in neuroscience now are 
coming a little bit behind what we knew as psychologists, which is that we have to divide concepts like memory into subsystems because they change at different rates. So as you mentioned, the hippocampus is involved in turning short-term memories into long-term memories in, in terms of conscious memory. So your memories for facts and events. But of course, there's a big habit learning system that operates in, in a different fashion that, you know, over multiple experiences, habits get laid down and they're much harder to break. So that system is much less flexible for example, than the hippocampal declarative memory system. Um, so, and we've known that, you know, from patients' studies, but also from, you know, people who have thought deeply about cognitive psychology. And now we're sort of seeing what is the brain basis of this. Um, but sometimes I worry that if we start talking too much about how plastic the brain is, that we lose this nuance. And people think that all of a sudden the potential for changing the brain is Limitless. Well, I, I sure I never argue it's limitless, but but I, I do want to make w one one statement, which is that I think it's very very important to distinguish between flexible and rigid behaviors and brain plasticity, because they tend to get mapped on each other. In the first book, I describe how many things that appear to be rigid are actually a function of plasticity. So, using a metaphor which is commonly used in science. That um, was originally used with respect to plasticity by Alvaro Pasqualioni, who's now at Harvard. Plasticity is like snow on a hill in winter. When you first want to go down th that virgin hill, if it's a virgin hill, because the snow is plastic and pliable, you can take many different paths down that hill. But as you keep repeating the, tr the trip, if you had a very good run down a particular part of the hill, being human, you'll probably take your next trip fairly close to the first trip because it was so rewarding and you develop tracks in the snow. And if you keep going down the, that route, those tracks become ruts and you get stuck in it. Now, that's because the snow is plastic and pliable. Okay, now let me unpack that metaphor. What it's saying is that, you know, brain plasticity is competitive. Uh, when you start to do something in a particular way, the neurons form links together and they fire very, very strong signals and they fire efficient signals. And if you try to do it in a slightly different way, the preferred already trained network is liable to take over. And we see this when a person, for instance, develops an accent. They learn to pronounce a word in a particular way. They become habituated to it and have trouble changing the pronunciation. Now, I would argue that rigidity is also a sign of plasticity. It's a sign of the fact that the network that you've trained and it's become habitual has been strengthened relative to the other networks. So ever since plasticity was first discovered, there were debates as to was the brain plastic throughout or were there variations of plasticity? And the, the general uh, Elkanon Goldberg is a wonderful, wonderful psych psychologist who studied with Alexander Luria, who founded neuropsychology, did a very important early paper. Um, and he argued originally that the cerebral cortex, which is the thin outer layer of the brain, which we often link up with higher mental functions in some way or another, was more plastic than the internal parts of the brain that are deeper in it, which seem to be involved with survival. Um, but I think that that, and I think Goldberg is a spectacular thinker, but I think that that initial thought 
was, first of all, based on the fact it was easier to demonstrate plasticity in the outer parts of the brain because you could do experiments on the outer parts of the brain using a technique called microelectrodes. And it was just presumed that if a function was there for survival, that it wouldn't be changeable. But in my first book, I argue that it's not the case. Whenever we've been able to look deep into the subcortical brain, we actually find it's plastic too. And in fact, you know, there are all sorts of experiments where you can sort of shock animals. Uh, they, they'll hear sounds and you, you, if you, you can follow the signals throughout the brain. And it seems that both the subcortical and the cortical parts of the brain turn out to be plastic. And well, what I'm about to say is a theoretical concept, which doesn't make it true. But if you think about it, if one part of the brain was very plastic and was connected to a part that wasn't, how would that work? How would one, you know, how, how would signals in one area change very quickly and then come up against this wall of rigidity? But anyway, that's a theoretical concern. I think what we've seen when we've been able to look at the relations between the parts of the brain that were thought to be most plastic and those that are less plastic is that they in fact are plastic. There's plasticity in the brainstem. There's lots of plasticity in the brainstem. There's plasticity in parts of the spinal cord too. So, I don't think our our measures are fine enough to, you know, give the ultimate de declaration as to you know how you me exactly measure plasticity. But we do see changes at many more levels of the brain than we thought. So my preferred formulation is that plasticity is the modus operandi uh, of of the circuits of our brain. I mean that that makes a lot of sense to me, and of course, there's a, a lot of data to support that idea, given that uh, that's how experience can is laid down. And, and in my opinion, that's what the brain is for is to, you know, have help let allow us to have our previous experiences help us in the future and, and sort of predict and make decisions for the things that we need in the future. And and I do, uh, I do think, though, that, you know, there is an argument to be made too for some regions being more plastic. And, and here I'm putting out my bias right away. I, uh, you know, for in, in my graduate work, I actually recorded from cells in the hippocampus and in patients with epilepsy. And, you know, we, we had this whole understanding of why that particular part of the brain would be more plastic than other parts of the brain, because it is involved in rapid one trial learning, and it needs to have this constant turnover. But that's also what makes it prone to starting epileptic seizures, which is the downside, right? Is like, is if you have this kind of uh, electrical activity that goes around, as opposed to other regions of the brain that are kind of, you know, like, for example, I wouldn't necessarily want the same plasticity um, in the language regions, because I want to be able to rely on those regions to to function and have a vocabulary that lasts for years. Of course, there's some plasticity because I want to improve my vocabulary and so and so forth. Uh, what do you think about this idea that, you know, there are some regions that might be plastic in a different way than others, and that maybe plasticity doesn't function? Well, I, I'm open to it conceptually. It's as a possibility. Um, there is variation in life. I, I'm just not what what I I think is wrong were the initial assertions that there's no plasticity whatsoever in the subcortical brain. Um, but how to sort of grade or differentiate it? I, I just um, apart from starting from theoretical premises that it makes good sense for one area to be more plastic and another less, uh, you know, we'd have to check that out empirically. The other thing I've learned is um, you have to be careful about extrapolating to the brain in general based on something like epilepsy. 
And I learned this from uh, basically the writings of Wilder Penfield. You know, he was very famous for saying, you know, he could put electrodes in different parts of the brains and stimulate memories and so on. And other people tried to replicate his findings. He used to work on people who had epilepsy and their skulls were removed and he had to cut out parts of the brain to stop the seizures from spreading. And he found that to try to protect the patient, he would, he would uh, basically stimulate the areas of tissue he was thinking of cutting out just to make sure it wasn't going to affect an area that was essential for survival. And, you know, in these famous experiments, he could touch a part of the brain and make the patient move a part of the bodies or touch another part of the brain and they'd have a sensation. But he found that he touched certain parts of the brain and they would have memories. When people tried to replicate that, they said um, they couldn't replicate it. And he, his position was, I never said that that could happen in, in a, quote, normal brain. It was happening in epileptic patients because uh, they're different. So I, I think that tells us something really interesting, which, which both bolsters what you're saying, but then makes one stand back, which is that um, there might be some kind of enhanced plasticity, if you will, in epileptic brains. But then the question is, can we generalize to everybody else's brain from that? But it's an listen. Your your work sounds very interesting to me. <laughs> well, we don't. We're we're here to talk about your work, but um, but yeah, in a, in a different forum, I'd be more than happy to continue the conversation to that end. And of course, we do have our own views are of of uh, you know how generalizable our data were. But um, but I I want to get back to you know talking about the, your your second book now which touches upon something that I think has always been very hard in neurology for a number of decades. And that is that because we didn't understand exactly how the brain changes, um, when there was injury to the brain or degeneration, a neurologist really kind of had a very difficult job. They could diagnose the problem, you know, and figure it out what's where it is and what's happening, but they didn't have a toolbox really to fix it or to, to help treat the patients. And now it seems that we are starting to enter an era where that might not be the case anymore, that, that neurologists might have tools in their toolbox now that, you know, might help use plasticity to improve patients' lives. So I want to start there and let's talk about what are some of these tools and what is the evidence that they would be effective, um, you know, to a, to a large population of patients. Well, the chief t- neuroplastic tools... Uh, put simply, are finding ways to stimulate the brain so that the person has mental experience or some kind of experience or engage them in activity to trigger those circuits to turn them on. And in in this new book, I describe the use of patterns uh, of information coming into the brain through forms of energy. So just put simply, The first book talked a lot about thought and activity to stimulate the brain. This book talks a lot about energy to stimulate the brain and use of the body to stimulate the brain. Only in neuroanatomy textbooks are the brain and the body radically separate. In terms of our everyday lives, they're connected by the peripheral nervous system. They're they're intimately connected in terms of function. One of the things that it seemed to me, based on a review of the literature, that you have in many kinds of brain conditions, 
are abnormal firing kinds of abnormal firing rates. This is obviously something that would be very familiar to you. Epilepsy is probably the most dramatic example of a brain that's firing in an abnormal way. But if you do something called quantitative EEGs, you find that a number of conditions show abnormal brain waves. And these always lead in one way or another to compromised function if they pass a certain threshold. And there are aspects of this in Parkinson's, depression, the aging brain, autism, learning disorders, multiple sclerosis. And these new techniques I describe in the book, in general, help the brain to resynchronize itself. You know, people used to think of the, are, are taught that, you know, brain cells are kind of on or off. They're firing or they're not firing. But that's not quite right. Um, when they're dead, they're not firing at all. But generally, when they're off, they're firing at a certain rate. And when they're on, they're firing at a faster rate. Or a slower rate. Or a slower rate. I said That's why I said generally. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, and but the, the, the key point is that there is a, an optimal baseline rate for, for a, a neuronal signal. And these, can, these get off in many ways. Now, we've used the EEG, which is a way of measuring brain waves and the firing of, you know, uh, sorry, the electrical function of lots and lots of, of brain cells uh, diagnostically for years. What is new, to answer your question, is we're at a point where we can, I think, begin to influence the firing of these cells, not just with medication or surgery, but with activity. And so one of the forms of doing that is something called neurofeedback, where people actually watch their brain waves firing, uh, firing in quotes. They watch, they watch their brain waves on a computer. It's rigged up to a game. And you can set the rewards or the inhibitions in that game to privilege the firing of certain brain waves and not others. When people have traumatic brain injury, for instance, they often have a lot of very slow waves, which um, normally people would show in, in the sleep stage if they're an adult. Uh, and But when you're having those after a brain injury, those areas of the brain aren't going to be functioning well. So you can actually do some training of those things. That's just one dramatic new tool, I would say, for a number of clinical disciplines. So, so one of the things we don't yet know, though, is the the cause of the changes in brainwave activity. So, for example, I can imagine that the cause that that you know ultimately leads to changes in the brainwaves that represent large scale networks of activity of neurons, you know, are caused by by one thing, you know, a tumor or epileptiform activity in a part of the brain or traumatic brain injury. And so what is the evidence that we can actually show long-lasting changes just by changing what seem to be the symptoms of the particular problem? Well, you know, I think that varies by from situation to situation, of course. Uh, but just to take this neurofeedback example, um, you know, the American there, – there's just a lot of data, and the American Academy of Pediatrics has officially recognized that – um, you know, the evidence basis for using neurofeedback for attention deficit is every bit as good as the evidence base for, for Ritalin. Um, and the distinct advantage of a neurofeedback approach is that, you know, you might 
you know, first of all, there are many kinds of attentional problems. You know, if we carefully unpack it, there are many things that look like attention deficit disorder that aren't. If you have a learning disorder, you will have attentional problems. If you have certain traumatic disorders, you'll have attentional problems. There's many, many things, but let's just stick with well-diagnosed attention deficit disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which is very common. You might do something between 40 or typically 40 to 60 sessions with neurofeedback, and you train yourself to control that gear shift of attention, and you won't need medication for the rest of your life, or in certain cases, you'll need much less. Um, the evidence base is very solid for that. It depends on the treatment. I, I talk about the use of uh, certain kinds of tr treatment for stroke, like the constraint-induced therapy. There are over 400 studies of that. Um, if we were to do 401, it wouldn't make it more true. And I've also, of course, followed many of these patients for years now. Um, other of the treatments I describe that are on the cutting edge, because mostly I write about cutting edge things, um, by definition, there aren't going to be as many studies. Some of, the stu some of the areas I write about have had a lot of studies of them, but because they're so outside the paradigm, which was this doctrine of the unchanging brain and this, the general disbelief that the brain could change, people didn't pay attention to the studies. There's over 2,000 studies of low intensity, you know, clinical trials and so on, of low intensity clinical, of low intensity lasers, which are the use of certain light frequencies that heal tissue, not like in James Bond where Goldfinger is going to cut James Bond in half with a hot laser, but these non-heat emitting lasers um, that are very, very effective. And I've, I've seen traumatic brain injuries and strokes improve with these things, and many other conditions improve with these frequencies that seem to go uh, affect living tissue at many levels, but they, they seem to help the mitochondria in particular, which are these little energy powerhouses in each of our cells, to perform better or normally in dormant circuitry, which is under-functioning. So it's sort of like... You know, the question is, what is the evidence? It's sort of like, does medicine work? You know, it's a, it's a very, very broad question. And for some things, amazingly well. For some things, not so well, and so on and so forth. But what neuroplasticity has done is it's opened up a new kind of treatment, a, a, a new kind of, a, a new family of treatments that are non-invasive, which is wonderful, which use energy and information, and, and even thought and activity to sculpt um, to sculpt our brain circuits. And in the first book, I was just trying to bring these things together just to make people understand that all these people who are working on this, who weren't always talking to each other, by the way, because it, when you work outside the mainstream paradigm, you're kind of working on the sly. A lot of these grants were done, a lot of these studies were done off-grant because the supervisors and the granting agencies didn't believe the brain was plastic. But in the first book, I tried to establish that the brain is not simply fixed uh, all the time. In, in this book, I'm working to try to, <sighs> with the embarrassment of riches that I've come across in terms of different approaches, with all of which involve sculpting brain circuitry non-invasively, I tried to develop a rationale as to why you might use one at one point and, and not another.
And that those are the stages of neuroplastic healing that are described in the book. And I, I agree with you that there's a lot of hope in, in your book, which I think is wonderful. It's a it's a major shift uh, from a lot of books on the same topics. You know, people that have some some severe problems are, are there is hope now that we might be able to figure out how to treat them. Um, I do think that we're still a ways off in terms of understanding the mechanisms. And, oh yeah. And- well, we don't even understand how the neural code works. I mean, there there are many very <laughs> neuroscientists. There's so much that we've learned in the last little while. It's easy to sort of skate over some of the fundamentals that we don't understand. Uh, I mean, I don't believe, first of all, we even have a good definition of mind. All the definitions that are provided in textbooks, when I look at them closely, are not definitions proper. They're really descriptions that uh, hide our ignorance. You know, you ask a person, you know, define mind, and they'll say, well, mental activities such as sensing, perceiving, emotional experience, planning. And I'll say, yeah, well, that's, those are descriptions of different mental activities, but what do they have in common? And then they might use a synonym and say, well, these are, they might say, well, they're subjective experiences, which is kind of a synonym for mind and so on. And that's okay, actually, as long as you recognize it, because the question of what is mind is not very different from the question, what is consciousness? And this is one of the, you know, the three huge unsolved questions in modern science. What is life? What is the universe? What is, what is consciousness? And whenever we have one of those big unsolved questions, the, the word in the question, life, mind, universe, is by definition the thing that we haven't yet bounded or, or completely figured out. And so in neuroscience, yes, there are lots of mechanisms. What, what we know is that what we... The, what we refer to as mind or mental experience or activity, uh, what, whatever those things mean, what we are trying to evoke when we use those words, can change brain structure and function. Exactly how it does it, we don't know. And, and there's certainly been you know, examples of treatments that have been successful and used for decades in psychiatry and neurology that we don't really know the mechanism for. So one thing I'm thinking of is, is ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, for the treatment of severe depression. We don't know how it works, but it works for patients that have no other option. But one of the things that worries me a little bit is if I'm a parent of a child, for example, that has autism, there are a lot of bits of information out there that are not based on science about treatments that might help. And, and especially in those kinds of populations where you have you know, a lot of emotions and vulnerable patients, I worry sometimes that people can take what we don't understand and run with it and give people false hope. So if I'm such a parent, um, how can you help me navigate the information that's coming at me and decide and figure out which of the treatments really are effective and which are just snake oil? Well, okay, so there's many, many things in your question. But I just want to say a, a few words about false hope. Um, I'm very, very clear at the beginning of my book that replacing the neurological nihilism, which I deal with every day of people who have been told that they couldn't get better, and yet I see these patients get better, you don't solve the problem of neurological nihilism by going to some kind of equally extreme neurological utopianism. And I never say to anybody, this will work, ever. I say things like, the statement made to you that nothing could help wasn't based on an exhaustive look at everything, and it was based on a doctrine of the unchanging brain. Uh, it's possible it's correct, but 
these are some things that have helped some people who were told just what you were told. And the symptoms and the problems you're describing seem similar. Why don't we give this a try? So my position is agnostic about these things. By the way, in ancient Greek, the word analysis means to tear apart. So if you have a heart problem, you go to a heart doctor. And if you have a kidney problem, a kidney doctor and a brain problem, a neurologist, or maybe a psychiatrist, if it seems more emotional and behavioral. Parents of kids with autism originally took their kids to psychiatrists because they, they had these obvious behavioral issues. But they began observing that their kids also had gastrointestinal problems in very high rates. And by the way, the empirical data shows that to be the case. And inflammatory conditions and skin problems and so on and so forth. Well, the psychiatrist would say, that's not my department. And they'd go off to the gastroenterologist and so on and so forth. Now, or to a nutritionist because they had very funny eating habits. Now, what those parents started to discover was that a number of their kids actually improved radically when they did some dietary changes. It varied from child to child, and it's not always the case. Anyway, this is all by way of saying we now have a new model of autism, which in some ways was very influenced by the parents because they were with the kids all the time. The psychiatrist was just with them 45 minutes once a month. And the new model of autism, which I think is better, is that autism is not a brain disease simply. It's rather a whole body disease, which also affects the brain. And we know that the autistic, from autopsies and all, all sorts of other studies, that autistic children have a lot of inflammation in their brain. And the inflammation, I just saw a very recent study, can even affect their ability to read social cues and because it seems to be affecting that as well. So... I'm not as worried about parents being exploited for, for, for this, this simple reason. I mean, I'm, we're all worried about exploitation all the time. But, you know, the mainstream situation in psychiatry, as I was trained, is if that a parent had an autistic child, and this still goes on today, you would tell them it's, it appears to be fundamentally genetic, and there's not much you can do about it at all except train them behaviorally to sort of act more normally. But about the fundamental condition, we were told it was genetic. Well, this turns out to be incorrect. You have genetic risk factors. There are, about, there, there, there are over 100 genes that have been implicated as risk factors, but none of them are very strong, and even the strongest of them are such that if you had one of those genes, you might not get autism. And so what was happening is the parents... And by the way, they are a very maligned group, in my opinion, depicted as hysterical and um, credulous and so on and so forth. They made all sorts of observations about things which are now finding their way back into mainstream medicine as useful for treating autistic kids. And some autistic children actually do get better with these things, which at first seemed odd. Like, why would it be the case that eliminating dairy and gluten for some children would improve symptoms if autism was simply a brain disease. Well, as long as we thought that the brain was separate from the body and that inflammation didn't play a huge role in autism, it seemed odd. But it turns out that the parents were right. Anyway, that's a long-winded answer. No, but I, I mean, I appreciate, I think it's important for, for that side to be heard as well. I, I do agree with you that I think a lot of the, we spend too much time maligning parents um, of kids and assuming that they don't know 
you know, they can't they can't tell the difference between, um, you know, something that's effective and something that's just just hopeful. And and, and you're underscoring a, an important point, I think, which is that we, we need to give them more than the benefit of the doubt. But we also need to give them the right information. And I think that that's where, you know, I, I, I see a, a lot of hope in, in reading your book. And it and I actually see the whole field of neurology changing now to becoming more positive as a result of these findings and of people, be, you know, being more open minded. Um, but I still think that we need to continue to study these things empirically because, you know, we are talking about things that are subjective and, and you know, we we don't want to miss out on potentially good therapies. I do still think that we need to have controlled studies with the right controls. That's always a challenge in, in this kind of work. And I, I mean, we're, we're already way over time. So, I, you know, I kind of feel like we could spend another hour talking about this. Um, but I think we have lots, lots of uh, topics now for, uh, you know, a follow-up show in the future. So I want to take this opportunity to let our listeners know that Norman Deutsch's new book, The Brain's Way of Healing, is available at booksellers everywhere. And to thank you for being on Inquiring Minds, Norman Deutsch. Thank you so much. Do you actually think that neuroplasticity as applied to these games can actually benefit us? Are we way ahead of the research? We're way ahead of the research. And, you know, the biggest problem in brain training games is what we call transfer. So you can have near transfer and far transfer. And near transfer means if I do this task, then I might be able to get better at a very similar task, right? So for example, if I learn to play the piano, maybe I can get better at some kind of you know, keyboard sequencing, something like that, that also uses my fingers. That's called near transfer. And there's evidence that, you know, these kinds of training programs do show near transfer effects. But the problem is that what we really want to see is far transfer. We want to be able to play a bunch of brain games and then remember what we need to remember when we go to the grocery store or find our car in the parking lot, etc. And these really are, are far transfer um, issues. And, and there hasn't been a lot of evidence that any of this n- neuroplasticity training that's available online and so forth really shows far transfer effects. Now, there are some companies who acknowledge this and they'll, you know, they'll say, look, um, training your brain is like exercising. And so if you want to, you know, improve a particular muscle group, like if you want to get bigger biceps, you need to lift weights with your arms. You can't just do a bunch of crunches. Um, and to some extent, you know, that's, that's true. Uh, but, you know, I think we still don't even know that playing a bunch of these games does increase the actual muscle that they're, that they're training, or does it just make you better at that particular game? So, you know, there's still a lot to learn. What I think is exciting about a lot of these tools is that a lot of people are participating in them. So these companies like Lumosity, for example, have a massive database and so much information from people. Like all of a sudden they have a subject pool of millions of people, tens of millions of people, which psychologists have never had access to. So you almost have an epidemiology of the brain. Yeah. So to me, that's really some of the exciting parts. So, you know, if you want to do some of this brain training stuff, I almost want to say like, look, don't worry about what effect it's going to have, you know, for you in the short term. But think about the science that we can get out of it. Think about what we can learn about the brain from your participating in these games. And, you know, a lot of them are fun. So well, I think- just get me my iPad now based <laughs> on that salesmanship. The thing that resonated with me from the interview is when it when you talk about hope, the hope that I was most interested in that he talked about was about non-invasive methods to treat certain 
uh, disorders, whether they be attention disorders like ADD or ADHD, uh, because of the profound societal benefit that that could have. Yeah, and I do think that that's something that's really promising. I'm not convinced yet that the tools that he describes in his book, um, you know, neurofeedback and some of these other other um, types of, of interventions really have been proven to be effective beyond placebo. Um, you know, the, the, the science is still in its infancy where, where that is concerned. But you know, we have also seen in, in um, conditions such as depression, for example, that talk therapies that are, you know, specific, like cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, can be just as effective and show the same neuroanatomical changes as a drug regimen. So, you know, I think there there's no doubt that we can have non-invasive interventions that have long-lasting effects and that do even change kind of these, what we think of as unchangeable parts of the brain. Um, but we have to make sure that the ones that we do have are as effective, right? Because, you know, it's it's a possibility, but we still need to evaluate them. And I think that that's one area that, you know, we still need to be careful about, especially when we're designing experiments to make sure that we have the right controls. I always wonder if we're getting a, a Gladwellian bias, that we are finding a set of people that are participating in these studies to highlight as outliers, in some way, they have incredible willpower, and they really stick with the regimen over a period of time. They select into these programs because they are already motivated and interested in some way. Well, I don't think that's necessarily the case with a lot of his patients. I mean, he has, you know, he has he has people coming in and and people people who have these diagnoses, you know, autism or ADHD or or depression or what have you. I mean, people come, they go to the psychiatrist and they have these disorders. And yes, I mean, even just going to the psychiatrist is a first step. So there's some self-selection there, but I still, I don't think that that's a huge barrier. Um, and I think that some of these non-invasive techniques that he's talking about really do have a kind of a, a, a medicine-like component. So, you know, you actually go into an office, you get a treatment. Um, so just in the same way as someone would go and do therapy, or, you know, go and get a massage or what have you, you know, I don't think the bar is that high. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds and you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show. You can also visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can find us on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. You can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And once again, this episode is sponsored by Ex Machina. A24 presents the sci-fi thriller directed by the writer of Sunshine and 28 Days Later. The Telegraph calls it bewitchingly smart science fiction, and the Daily Mirror declares it's an instant classic. Starring Oscar Isaac, Domhnall Gleeson, and Alicia Vikander, Ex Machina opens in select theaters in New York and L.A. on April 10th. More cities and theaters every week after that. Inquiring Minds is produced by Smarty Pants Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontos. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Geesh. See you next week. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. 
Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.